the Ordre du Temple Solitaire, or OTS, or as maybe you do or don't know it, the Order of the Solar Temple, was a relatively obscure French-speaking initiatory occult order that really not many people have heard of. See, and that's the thing with cults, right? If you're able to fly under the radar, if you're able to not draw attention to yourself, but still draw in members, then you're successful. And what is the recipe for a successful cult, for fringe religion? Well, you have to have people that believe it and follow your teachings. You also have to have someone who can create cult structure and enforce it. And above all, you have to have a charismatic leader capable of drawing in more initiatives to your cult and convincing them to stay and that the things that you are doing make sense and are valued. And see, the Solar Temple got very lucky in this regard because Joseph de Mombro was a charismatic figure, as was Luc Giraud. They were able to draw in rich and wealthy people from Switzerland and Canada and convince them that an apocalypse was coming and in order to survive it, they would need to transition into a higher world to make a new life for themselves on the Dog Star series. And to you and I, this sounds completely insane, right? But it didn't sound insane to Heaven's Gate cult members. It didn't necessarily sound insane to members of the People Temple people's temple and i think that is the enigmatic thing about cults and cult leaders they are able to convince otherwise very smart very savvy people to give up their their life and their friends and their time and their money all in the name of looking for some higher power or being so why are we talking about the solar temple today what makes them special well see that's the thing they're not very special at all but what I want to explore today is how two men who started out talking about homeopathic remedies and educational books and a man with the ability to be a doctor and another man who we don't know much about, but know that at some point he might have been a banker or a watchmaker, were able to convince a group of people to give over their lives in the pursuit of something akin to essentially heaven the the non-american version of heaven's gate cult but also we're able to convince these people to commit murder for them and then also commit suicide because what makes the not so special order of the solar temple fascinating and special is that over the course of three years from 1994 to 1997, in three separate incidences, the cults, including Luc Giraud and Joseph de Mombro, both leaders, all committed murder and then died by suicide. So what I want to look at today is how it's possible for a group to go from seemingly obscure and quote unquote harmless religious fringe group to making national headlines for being one of the largest murder suicides to ever occur with the death of over 70 people. You see, and this is where we start with the stories of Joseph de Mombro, Luke Giraud, and the Order of the Solar Temple.
You're now listening to Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V. and celebrate my belated birthday on the 7th um, by talking about a cult this week. So I wanted to pick one, like I did the Ant Hill Kids. I wanted to pick something that we don't normally hear about um, in America. So we're going to talk about the Order of the Solar Temple today. So I guess the best place to start is from the beginning, right? Um, so the Solar Temple was one of a number of groups that emerged in France and the neighboring countries um, in the years since 1804 that traced their authority to a lineage of Grand Masters of the Order of the Temple, which was a medieval order of knights that was suppressed at the beginning of the 14th century. In 1804, a Parisian physician, Bernard Raymond Fabre Palaprat, sorry if I got it wrong, um, claimed that he was a successor to a secret line of Templar grandmasters who had kept the order alive through the years since its disappearance from public view. Following the death, um, following his death, the order began to splinter. Um, and among the modern splinters from this order was the renewed order of the temple that was founded around 1970 about roundabout by Julian Origus. So the Solar Temple was founded in 1984, um, and it was founded by Luc Jure and Joseph de Mombro. There's not a lot known about Joseph de Mombro. Um, he was born in 1924. Um, it's said that Joseph de Mombro was a French jeweler and a watchmaker. And as a young man, he had joined um, a group called the Ancient and Mystical Order of the Rosé Crucius or A-M-O-R-C. Um, and Rosicrucians certainly are um, a group that you can still go to their website. They will send you their literature for free, but it's very much kind of in line with like the thinking of um, Da Vinci. It is very much supposed to be about um, this this free thinking, this, this pursuit of enlightenment, this pursuit of, of truth and, and higher powers and higher orders specifically for Rosicrucians and this idea of pursuing that. Um, but what Joseph de Mombro did after joining that is that he founded um, several organizations after that consider um, of his own. And one of those is the Center for Preparation of the New Age. Um, and that was in France. And then from that, he founded um, a successor group, and that was called the Golden Way Foundation in Geneva, Switzerland. And the way that he came in contact with the other leader of the Order of the Solar Temple is through the Golden Way Foundation that he founded. And that is where he met Luc Giraud because he had Luc Giraud come and do health lectures at the Golden Way Foundation. So this is where we really learn more about Luc Giraud. Um, so he is a bit younger than Joseph de Mombro. Joseph de Mombro, again, was born in 1924. Luc Giraud was born in 1947. Um, and he was born in the Belgian Congo. And 
As a youth, his parents returned to Belgium, where he attended the Free University of Brussels and became a physician. And after a short time in the army, he took the training um, for to be a homeopathic physician, and he established a practice in France. So in the early 1980s, um, as this idea of homeopathic medicine and remedies and, you know, being more health conscious um, and alternative medicine came into view, um, he became a very popular speaker um, in French speaking Europe and Quebec um, regarding alternative medicine. And so it's through these travels and these lectures and his invitation to speak to the Golden Way Foundation that he met Joseph de Mombro. So they founded the Solar Temple as a secret order in the 1980s, and the members were drawn in, and this is an interesting kind of setup that they have, right? So the Solar Temple as itself, OTS, or it was called the Order of Solar Temple, is kind of like a secret society, right? Like a skull and bones or something to that effect. Um, so you don't really know, or we don't know a lot about the inner workings of that specifically, um, because like any good secret society, it's not good if it's not a secret, right? So there's not a lot of direct correlation or direct information that can be gleaned regarding the inner workings of the solar temple, specifically because you had to be very high ranking to learn all of those inner workings. And an example of this that we all may be kind of more familiar with than we are with kind of like the idea of like the Knights Templar in secrecy is Scientology, right? And they have the bridge and they talk about being OT1 or OT7 or whatever, and you have to go up these bridges to become clear. I think we've all kind of been vaguely familiar with that. Well, I'm not going to get too far into that because obviously we'll cover it in a different episode. But when you are doing these bridges and moving up, they don't tell you the true secrets of Scientology on the lower levels of the bridge, right? Like you have to have invested lots of time and money and done all the readings and all this other stuff to then be allowed to learn the secrets of the higher ups and see the solar temple actually works very similar to this. So the way it works is they have some lower level groups that are more esoteric, right? It's called the Amanta and the Arcadia Clubs. And so basically when they would invite you to join, you weren't joining the Solar Temple. You were joining the Amenta or the Arcadia Clubs. And when you joined Amenta Club, it was the lowest level club. That was where they sent new recruits. And this is where Luke Giraud was able to shine because he would talk to you about homeopathic medicine, about alternative remedies. They would talk about, you know, ushering in a new age, but it was very much about spiritual connection and oneness with your body and ways to become healthier through homeopathic meditations and remedies. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary for the time. Like Luke Giraud was not necessarily saying anything revolutionary or anything that would raise red flags for people. After you got past the Amanta Club, there was then the Arcadia Club. And so that was mid-level where you would learn some of the, the Templar rituals from the Knights of Templar. So if I hadn't mentioned that before, a lot of the Solar Temple's rituals and upper-level secrecy things are based on the idea of Knights Templar rituals and that idea of them crusading and having and being able to 
unlock and basically have visions of or they're able to project images to the group of these Knights Templar artifacts, for instance, like the Holy Grail. Now we'll learn later that this is done through holograms <laughs> and that obviously they weren't able to project these holy relics and they had not seen them and they're not obviously the second coming of Jesus or any of these things. But this is what they were telling their followers and this is what they got people to believe. Um, so in addition to that, they practiced various meditative and occult disciplines and participated in elaborate rituals to achieve what they considered an enlightened state of consciousness. So the rituals were supposed to invoke a spiritual hierarchy of ascended masters to send light and love to bring in with them through the new age. So this idea is also referred to as theosophy. So we'll talk a little bit about this. And I, I mentioned it earlier in the introduction, but the idea of ascended masters is what I said that they believed that they were able to come back. And so they considered like an ascended master to be like Jesus or Buddha. But they also said that they had come back into their physical form, Luke Giroux and Joseph de Mombro, and that they were also ascended masters as to say that they had been maybe Jesus or Buddha before or someone else that would be considered holy or spiritual and that they are now back on earth um, in their bodily form. So I think it's interesting before we go too much further to discuss the fact that Joseph DeMombro at some point was operating as a psychologist um, in France. And so about the time <laughs> that he had met um, Luke Giraud and had joined the Rosicrucians, he was fresh off of having to flee France into Switzerland because he was operating as a psychologist with no licensing. So it's fascinating to me how well he was able to convince and trick these people or brainwash them into believing this doctrine that he had created. And I think a lot of that is that he was certainly a student of, of sociology, a student of psychology. And he, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because he was going to have charges brought against him for fraud, for operating without a license, but he was able to fly under the radar for so long, considering that everything that we know about him, the very little that we know about him says that he was a, a watchmaker and a jeweler. So it's it's very interesting to me that someone that is a watchmaker and a jeweler was able to operate for many years as a psychologist with no licensing or degree before anybody caught on. So in 1984, we're here again and we're talking about the order of the solar temple. And so Luke is Dro, his lectures are bringing in many people, right? Because we're just talking about homeopathic medicine. We're not talking about anything crazy. So we have the theosophy that we were talking about with the ascended masters. Um, and then they have this belief that the star Sirius is where all human consciousness is generated from. So basically you would just, your, your body is like, 
just a vessel. And so our actual human consciousness is on the star series and it is being projected back to earth into the bodies that we inhabit. So members that were in the Amanta club and the Arcadia club would pay very large sums of money to ascend to the other levels, right? Which is how it works for <laughs> how it works for any of these places, right? Like you were supposed to give up your money to the leaders and then you're supposed to live humbly while the leaders live lavishly, right? And it's because they're closer to God or to the spirit, or in this case, I guess the star Sirius are the ascended leaders. And so it's okay for you to give all your money to them and then live, let them live lavishly because they are more entitled to it than you are. I mean, or that's generally the idea. So the group prospered on this model through the 1980s. And at its peak, it had about 442 members. So again, it wasn't a super huge cult, right? We're not talking, you know, multiple locations and thousands of thousands of people, the very meager following of under 500 people, but flourishing because the key to Joseph DeMombro and Luke Jarreau's plan was that they were able to recruit wealthy members, right? They weren't recruiting people who were in debt or poor and looking, they weren't doing like outreach, outreach religion where it's feed the needy or the sick, or, um, we have, um, uh, meals that we're volunteering or giving out turkeys at Thanksgiving. It was very much not that. It was geared towards, I don't want to say this and make it sound crazy, but towards rich white people. Um, and, and we'll learn later exactly why that is, um, because frankly, Joseph DeMombro had some very Nazi-esque beliefs. Um, and we'll talk about that at length in a bit, but it's just interesting to me when I talk about this, that, you know, there's just, there's not a lot of, like I said, there's not a lot of people of color involved and there's certainly not any poor people involved here. They are looking for people that can contribute large subs of money to this in exchange for feeling like they are a part of some secret club or cult that other people can't either afford to get the knowledge or don't have the means or whatever you would like to call it to be included. So in 1994, because through the eighties, things were great. In in the early 1990s, things kind of started to fall apart for them. Um, they started to think of other ways that they could kind of escape and an alternate plan because they felt like the world was not catching on to the plan that they were making, right? So this is when DeMombro and Jure and a few of the members that they had in their confidence, aka the members of the Order of the Solar Temple in the inner circle, started talking about this idea of um, suicide. And this was their way to escape to the higher reality. So in 1982, Joseph DeMombro had fathered a female child, Emmanuel who was assigned a Masonic role in the new age. She was considered to be like the cosmic child. So she was going to be like the child that brought about the new world order was the idea. Um, 
Joseph DeMombro also had a son, Ellie. Um, and the way he described it is that neither child had a human mother and that they were basically created through cosmic energy and uh, conjured, conjured up through spiritual um, spiritual sacrifice and, and these types of, which he called theogamy, basically like they are, you know, they're base sending down Jesus Christ and that Mary, the Virgin gave birth to the Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. It is the same idea here, except for in this scenario, DeMombro, I guess is considering himself to be God. And then his children, Ellie and Emmanuel would be Jesus. And so I guess maybe I have that wrong. And DeMombro would be Mary. I'm not entirely sure because he's saying they don't have an earthly mother. So I guess in this scenario, DeMombro is Mary and he birthed or created these children, Ellie and Emmanuel. Um, Ellie, his older son is not, is in this cult, but he is not considered the cosmic child. Um, so we have Emmanuel, who is a little girl who is the cosmic child and is... I guess certainly brought up to believe that she is special and that her birth is going to bring about great changes in the world. So a few things to keep in mind about this cult. Um, DeMombro was the one really pulling the strings as far as these um, rituals and what people could do or couldn't do and what they believed in. Because Lugero for all intents and purposes, besides being wrapped up in this cult, was still just giving his lectures and doing his homeopathic thing to bring in members, right? So he's the face of this organization. He's bringing in members. He seems reputable. People are coming. Everything is good. DeMombro is the one that's a little bit more fringe with his beliefs. And so he is the one doling out and dictating orders. So he insisted on controlling um, the higher level members lives uh, to the point to where he would tell them um, who they could marry, um, if they could have kids um, and what they even could name these children if they had them. And he would tell them things like he had magical sex powers and he would convince members that they would have to have sex with him. And that is how they would reach these um magical powers that he had and that he was enlightened and if they had sex with him then they were able to reach these ascended planes that he was on in 1986 is when they make the move um from switzerland so basically Giro and demombro convinced a handful of their loyal followers um that they needed to to leave so they buy a chalet in morin heights which is 50 miles north of, of Montreal, and it served as headquarters for now what they were calling the Order of the Solar Temple. And then halfway between Montreal and Quebec, Luc Jure established an organic farm. So what we find out is that Rosemarie Klaus and her former husband, Mr. Klaus, had followed Luke and Joseph to Canada from Switzerland. And then she says that her husband provided $500,000 that they needed to set up this organic farm. So this kind of tells you and shows you the amount of money that these people had at their disposal that they were then using to send out to or convince their other members that they needed to spend. So this is how they were able to garner great wealth and get these people to be involved, involved in the cult and not be worried about money. They also felt like the, the recent, they would recite, um, 
the great invocation that originated with the Alice Bailey's arcane school, and that was an integral part of their ritual life. Uh, Members also believe that the group would produce a next generation of exceptional children, including nine cosmic children who would initiate the new age. This is where Manuel comes in. And to this end, the group members listened to DeMombro's identification of them with famous people in previous incarnations, and then he would pair the members in cosmic marriages, which I said before. He basically told them that you are part of something special. You are going to give birth to these unique, special, godlike children. And so we need to pair you up with the people that I see that you were incarnated from so that we can bring these children into the world. And the people bought into this. They were absolutely like, okay, This is cool. Let's go with it. Jeray told people that a great cataclysm is going to take place and only the elected would survive. So he persuaded all of these people to leave Europe and France and to sell everything that they had and invest in these projects like the the chalets and the organic farms and that Luc Jeray thought at this point that he and DeMombro were Christ-like figures. So one of their most notable successes, and I think is is wildly interesting, there are a couple of very interesting documentaries on YouTube. They're not great quality because they're from like the early um, 90s when this transpired. Um, and they are in normally in France because this is a French-speaking cult. But uh, there are some English mixed in and subtitles. Um, so on YouTube, there are some really good uh our documentaries that you can watch, they kind of go into um, what happened here and we're going to cover it briefly. But they were able to use members of the sect to infiltrate Hydro-Quebec, which is the province's electrical utility company. So through Jean-Pierre Vinette, he was a sect member who was the company's projects manager manager, Mr. Jure was invited in 1988 and then in 89 to give a series of paid lectures to the executives on subjects including the meaning of life and self-realization and management. All in all, the utilities company said that 17 of the employees were linked to the sect. So in 1993, Luc Jure and Mr. Vignet and another sect member were charged with possession of illegal weapons. So basically they decided that they needed weapons for protection. They were starting to get very paranoid. And so they decided that they were going to buy weapons. Well, the thing about this is that it's not necessarily illegal to buy the weapons, but they were going to buy things that were illegal, like guns with silencers. And so basically... they decided that they would try to buy these guns for protection and they just so happened to buy the guns or try to buy the guns from an undercover police officer. And that is when we found out that actually there was a police officer who was in the group who also, knowing that it was illegal for them to buy guns with silencers, agreed to help them try to find these weapons. So they were arrested and they pleaded guilty um, for possession of illegal weapons, but uh, Luke Giroux was only ordered to pay $1,000 to the Red Cross after persuading the judge that he needed the weapons for his own protection. So again, what I said, they're, they're increasingly paranoid, but they were able to just kind of sweep it under the rug and say, hey, we're not doing anything wrong here. We just wanted the guns. Maybe the silencer was a bit far, but we're not violent and we promise not to do it again. 
So the judge gave him a slap on the wrist. The issue with this is, is that the Canadian police still felt like something was fishy. And so they suspected Luke Giroux of much worse. And soon after he arrived in Quebec, they had asked the Swiss police for information about him. So in 1992, they believed that Luke Giroux was behind a paramilitary group known as Q37, which had threatened to kill the province's public security minister, Claude Ryan. So this is where we get into the part about I said that they were had some Nazi tendencies. As it turns out, Luke Giroux and Joseph DeMombro were of the idea that Canada and France and, and Europe and Switzerland were all places that were being ruined by immigrants coming over to the country and being involved and in being wanting to be citizens of these countries. Sorry, not being involved in. They 100% doubled down on this idea because basically the way the story goes is a man named Andre, and that's the only name he gave, called several different police stations to tell them that he was in a paramilitary group, Q37, and they were going to murder murder the minister, public security minister, Claude Ryan. And they told them that the reason they were going to do this is because they felt like indigenous peoples did not deserve rights. And Claude Ryan was pushing for these people to have citizenship and rights and for immigrants to also have rights and be treated fairly. And that simply would not do. So they ramped up the Nazism, ramped up the racism, and then decided on top of that, they would sprinkle in a little bit of domestic terrorism for good measure. The sect was also investigated for possible links to bombings of two of Hydro-Quebec's transmission towers in March of 1992 as well. So they were very, very busy. The thing about this that I found particularly interesting is that Joseph DeMombro's name did not surface in any of these police inquiries. But press reports in Canada now assert that he operated an arms trafficking ring that included money laundering through Swiss banks. And some of the former sect members say that Joseph DeMombro also also always controlled the sex finances. So Mr. Giroux remained an inspirational figure, but was not the person basically took care of the money. He was just like a figurehead for the, for the group. So the way that worked is that they would use the money that they were getting and they would buy and sell properties continuously. And through these buying and selling, they would then take this money and funnel it through Swiss banks. And so to a lot of people, it looks like they are money laundering. And I think after a while, they were just like, okay, this is weird. And it was just super strange that they were able to uh, do all this. And the Canadian government had the right idea, right? Now that they're looking back and they're like, yeah, there's something fishy going on. And they absolutely believe that they were trafficking arms and money laundering, but they can't prove it. So... This is after the fact and them kind of doing forensic accounting, but nobody else was ever charged. So they don't think that they have enough proof to, to prosecute anybody for this. They would use things like a golden chalice. They would burn incense and the members would wear these white or red or black capes depending on their rank. And then there was a painting of a bearded Christ-like figure with one rose over his head. Then that was on the wall and that presided over the entire area. Another sect member told the Swiss Daily News that drugs were another form of control for them. They had a habit of putting drugs in their coffee or soup. They'd find, make them sign papers they didn't want to sign. And a lot of times they were given the, these things before rituals. So they were essentially high out of their mind, but actually 
explains a lot. So we are going to head into part two of this and the end of this cult and the tragic murder suicides right after this break. And we're back. So you'll notice that I didn't really want to talk about the psychology of cults because I've done that when we covered the anthill kids and really not much has changed here. Um, and plus there's just kind of not a lot known, but certainly a lot to talk about. So let's let's get into the end of it shall we the, the the hardest part i guess to get through here so let's fast forward past 1993 to where we are now so roughly in 1994 um demombro and Jure and a few of the members their confidence you know had started to wane and so this is when they start trying to plan this suicide ascension but what led up to that um basically right after they are arrested on the arms charges they're telling everybody that you know so the solar temple holds a press conference with the mayor and says that they aren't a cult and they're able to convince you know other religious leaders and you know people in the people in that community that they were harmless essentially and that nothing bad would happen and then in april of that same year is when the siege on the siege in Waco and the Branch Davidian complex with uh, David Koresh happens. So obviously the world is a little on edge because of what happened there. So after this conviction, Luke Giroux really couldn't get a job. Nobody really wanted to hear him lecture because no one wants to hear a, co a convicted felon who they suspect, you know, <laughs> are is dealing in arms trafficking to be like, oh, let's talk about homeopathic medicine. So they also have the authorities investigating this possible money laundering because they have $98 million being funneled through the organization and into Luke Jarreau's Australian and Swiss accounts. So this is why I said DeMombro is not implicated in any of this because he's accessing the money, but he's using Luke Jarreau to do it so that his hands stay clean, which I found to be very, very smart, but Poor Luke, I think a lot in a lot of ways was a, a willing participant, but certainly was under Joseph DeMombro's thumb as well. What we also learn is that Joseph DeMombro's older son, um, Emily, is not jiving with what they're doing anymore right he's like 19 20 years old at this point and i think he realizes that there is no way in hell that if everyone is sober and not hopped up on all the drugs that they're putting in their coffee and pills before these quote-unquote rituals that anybody's actually going to see the holy grail or they're actually going to see knights of templar so what they find out is that two of the members of the organization tony dutrois was actually creating these images that they were putting in the middle of these um, rituals with holograms. So basically he was doing the 19, early 1990s equivalent of like green screen and like a laser light show. And because everyone was high out of their minds, they really thought that they were seeing like Jesus Christ and Buddha and reincarnations of religious figures and religious artifacts were being beamed from wherever they are into vision in these rooms during these rituals. And so all I can imagine is a bunch of very rich people standing around in, in 
Templar robes looking at holograms and ooing and eyeing while being like high out of their minds on LSD. And all it is is like a, a laser light show that they show you at like the zoo slash aquarium. That is wild. But at some point, I think Tony and Nikki were married to each other and they got very tired of this whole idea of not being in control of their lives. So in 1991, Tony and Nikki had decided to leave the cult, but because they kind of, Tony did all of the like IT and that type of things, they essentially would like still freelance for the cult and do like sound checks and that type of thing and help them out when they needed it. So essentially in Tony and Nikki's minds, Although they weren't active members of the cult any longer, they still felt like these are our friends and we left on good terms. We don't want anybody to think that we do not still care about them. And so they were still working very closely with Joseph DeMombro and Luke Giroux and still in contact with the people in the cult. Well, as I mentioned before, Joseph DeMombro was very controlling about what he told members they could and couldn't do. He would tell them to go outside and eat grass or not wear shoes for three days and they would do it. He had total control over these people's minds and their money. So I say that to say that he was telling them that we're going to have these cosmic children that are going to usher the new age in. And at some point, Tony and Nikki had gotten pregnant and they had lost the baby. And it was at that point that Joseph DeMombro told them that they were not allowed to have children or try to have children anymore. And after a discussion and some soul searching, they decided that that simply would not do for them. And that is why they essentially left the group. They actually ended up with Nikki getting pregnant again. And this time there weren't any issues. And she delivered a healthy baby boy in July of 1994. And they named him Christopher Emmanuel Dutrois. The issue with that is, is that there was already an Emmanuel, and that was Emmanuel, Joseph DeMombro's daughter. Even though Tony Dutrois and Nikki Dutrois had left the group and were just on good terms with them, Joseph DeMombro, becoming increasingly paranoid in his sickness and illness, decided that this was an affront to him and that if Emmanuel, if Emmanuel his daughter, was considered basically holy and the cosmic child then another child born and given her name even though it was his middle name and it was a manual that that simply would not do and that the baby must be the antichrist and it is then that he decided that he was so upset and so slighted by the idea that not only had tony and nikki left the group and when they had told others that everything that they were imagining were drug-induced holograms and laser light shows, that they simply would not be allowed to live. So at this point, the group is down to maybe 100 members because everyone else has left because they've realized that they spent thousands and thousands of dollars and gave up all their property to basically be penniless and wear robes and look at holograms for no real reason. Joseph DeMombro, angry and, and upset and still, again, slighted by the Dutrois, decided that they had to die. And they not only would die, but they would be the ones to kick off 
the suicides and the ascension to Sirius for the rest of the group. So basically in order to do this, Joseph DeMombro convinces Joel Egger and Dominique Belaton that they would need to kill the Dutois. He also sent Colette and Gary Junot, members of the order who would set up the killings. So basically the way this worked is that the Dutois were invited to dinner by the by Colette and Gary Janot because they were good friends while they were still active in the cult. So basically after they had the baby, they hadn't been out in a while, the Colette and Gary Janot invited Tony and Nikki Dutois and baby Christopher to um, their house for dinner. Uh, this is when the other two members, Joel Egger and Dominique Belaton, surprised and ambushed the Dutois and stabbed them to death. And then they then stabbed baby Christopher to death and then drove a wooden stake through his heart and then stuffed all three bodies in a supply closet. This happened on October 3rd of 1994. And then Joel and Dominique committed a suicide in the house in Morin Heights, Quebec. So basically what they did was they committed suicide in the house after they had stuffed the bodies in the closet. And then Colette and Jerry Janone, who had set up the ambush, they then spent the time directly after the murders cleaning up everything and getting rid of any evidence that would tie them back to what happened. They then light the entire house on fire and leave it to burn. On that same day, 22 people were found dead in Switzerland, 18 of whom were found in a room with their bodies arranged in a circular pattern as if they were the spokes on a wheel. So basically what happened is that they were all in one of the chalets that the group had purchased and they were in their robes. They were all scattered at their feet and then they committed suicide or were murdered because some of the people had gunshot wounds. Some of them had bags over their heads. Some of them were drugged. So it is hard to say that everyone committed suicide voluntarily. Some of these people were murdered. And at that point, whoever was alive at the last bit, they set up bombs in a hidden room uh, with crude explosives. But thank goodness those actually did not go off. And they had doused the entire place in gasoline and then set it on fire. And so when it all burned down, they found these bodies arranged in a circular pattern. A few days later, on October 25th, 25 additional bodies were found in two, two other chalets in Switzerland where the same thing had transpired. It was later concluded through, you know, arson investigators and crime scene, re, um, crime scene reconstruction that there was a total of 52 dead bodies, but only 15 of them were suicides. Besides the three people that had been murdered in Canada, baby Christopher and his mom, Nikki, and his dad, Tony, the Dutois, the majority of them had been drugged and killed, many of them shot to death. DeMombro and Jure were among those who committed suicide, which means they more than likely helped facilitate the deaths of the other people involved and then shot themselves 
before setting fire or set the place on fire and then shot themselves once they were satisfied that it would all burn. I think the most interesting thing about this is that many of the cult members would say that Joseph de Mambra would talk about like how he was born of the flame and he would return to it and there'd be nothing left of him. But it became pretty clear when they were going through the wreckage to or going through the remains of these fires to identify bodies, they were able to identify Joseph de Mambra very quickly. And some of the living or, you know, people that were involved in the cult and got out thought that it was wildly interesting that for someone who said that their body would go up in flames completely and nothing would be left, that he was probably one of the easiest to identify. The next year, 16 more people who had not been invited to the original event in Switzerland died by their own hand. Uh, near France. So basically, they were in on the plan or understood that this was what was supposed to happen at the end and decided simply that because they were not at the original site, that they would also commit suicide. And so that happened in France. And then a final five members died on March 22nd, which is the spring equinox. And that was three years later in 1997 in Canada. Um, and those final five members also committed suicide. What's interesting about this one is that they also tried to get their children. They had children and they were going to murder the children and then commit suicide. So what happened here is that they are in their, this cottage and they're preparing everything and they are going, they basically drug these children or try to drug these children and are going to, to kill them. And the children actually beg to be let go because they don't want to die. And the parents out of some act of kindness or love for their children decide that they're not going to murder them. They let the children go and then commit suicide and burn the cottage down. And the children are wandering around in the Canadian outskirts or provinces until they find help and are able to call the fire department and the police and tell them what happened. So the Solar Temple deaths were a unique event for the European Templar and occult community because really everyone considered the order of the Solar Temple to be harmless. They considered them to be a group of rich people who wanted to do Knights Templar cosplay and pretend that they could conjure up spirits. But no one thought that they were dangerous or that they were murderous or that they would commit suicide or that they would infiltrate the companies, the country's utility company and have project members as a member of their cult to the tune of 17 people being involved in a cult that are in charge of the entire country's utilities. So even though it has been in the popular consciousness tied to several other violent incidents that are involving small new spiritual religious groups like Om Shinrikyo or Heaven's Gate. In France and Belgium, it led to a backlash against minority religions that continues to the present. The government of Switzerland carried out the group's carried out an extensive investigation of the deaths and concluded that it had been the outcome of obviously the group's theological choices. Um, and they contacted, you know, cult 
experts, the religious scholars, and they had them consult with the police in their investigation. But what they found is that ultimately their belief that this was a higher ascension is what drove them to do this. And unfortunately, Joseph DeMombro, because he at the end was someone who wanted to be in complete control, could not handle that the Dutois were able to leave the cult and flourish and went against his wishes to have a baby. And because they gave poor Christopher a middle name that he didn't like, they all had to die for it. So I think that it is just a cautionary tale of really what can happen when we think of fringe groups, but assume that they are harmless or that these groups won't do anything if not paying attention. And I think Canada or the Canadian government had the right idea to be concerned. And unfortunately, they just weren't able to put all the pieces together in time to save anyone. There were sect members who believe that Luc Jure and Joseph de Mombro weren't among the bodies, right? There are people that believe that it wasn't a murder-suicide, that the government was trying to take this sect down and that nobody committed suicide. But again, a lot of this is is documented or, or video recorded from the mouths of Joseph DeMombro and Luke, and Luke Jarae that this is what they believed. And so it is very hard for me to get on that conspiracy train that the Canadian government had all these people murdered in three separate dates, you know, across the span of three years, all in the name of wiping out the order of the solar temple, when they had actually done a very good job of pretty much convincing anybody standing in their way that they were a threat. So there was really no reason for the Canadian government to kill these people. Another idea is that Luc Giroux and Joseph DeMombro's bodies weren't recovered among those found dead and that they are somewhere living off the money that was in their Swiss or offshore bank accounts and they were somewhere living it up. But through dental records and whatever forensic measures were used, they were able to positively identify both bodies. So there's no idea that they or no way that they have gone into hiding or anything like that. At first sight, the idea of collective suicide does not necessarily seem remote, right? And this is because Luc Jure spoke endlessly of the quote-unquote final end brought on by man's destruction of nature, and he promised that there would be a purification to his followers. He said that, quote, we are the circle of fire. Everything is being consumed. We are about to make a leap in macroevolution. And make a leap he did. And Joseph DeMombro and Luke Jure were able to use his charm and their good looks and their apparent passionate faith in their beliefs to build their own million dollar empire in which even more than controlling the considerable wealth that they accumulated from these people, they controlled their minds and their hearts. And in the end, it caused death and destruction for over 70 people over the course of three years wiped out an entire innocent family of people that had just had a brand new baby and caused ripple effects throughout Switzerland and Canada that they're still feeling today. I don't know what the lesson is to take away from here, but I think that when we talk about cults, we have to realize that a lot of times it is not sinister all the way around. They don't all start out as some inherently evil thing. And in a lot of cases, I don't think that they believe themselves to be inherently evil. These people started out with relatively normal beliefs that 
stem from things that are still practiced now, a mix of Catholicism, a mix of astrology, a mix of Rosicrucian beliefs. All of these things can be researched on the internet. You, As I said earlier in the episode, you can go to the Rosicrucian website and they will send you literature that you can read right now. So again, it was a mixture of things that felt very much like putting on a show, like cosplay, like pretending to be in a secret group, but no one thought that anything bad would happen. And isn't that the case with most cults? We pride ourselves in America on this belief in religious freedom and freedom from religious persecution. And Sometimes there's a lot of gray area because what do you consider a religion? What do we consider religious freedom when the definition of what you believe can be so loosely defined? So I think that is very often that the question that we are left with, right? If we allow people the freedom to believe what they want to believe and worship what they want to worship, is there a way to regulate that? So that we don't have these considerable murder suicides, that we don't have people whose fringe beliefs are so fringe that it intrudes on the rights of others to live and to not be have their baby stabbed in the heart with a wooden stake, to not have all their money brandished or taken from them by a group, to not be starved or their head shaved in order to believe or be a part of a group or beaten to death that they decide to leave. So I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer to that because I think that is the case with all things that involve free will. If we have the freedom to choose, there will always be people that choose the most random, the most obscure, and sometimes the deadly or sinister path. And it very often results in the murder or suicide of others. <sighs> And guys, that is the story of the Order of the Solar Temple. I wish there was more information that I could give you regarding the beliefs of the group or <laughs> more defined set of, of rules or, or something to that effect. But the truth is, is they did a very good job of keeping things secret. And I mean, they, in this case, took it to their grave. So all we can really surmise is what was left from the ruins and what um, members that got out and are still alive are able to tell us, but there really isn't much more than that. Uh, so thank you for sticking and hanging in there with me um, on our return here at Murder Be Wrote in the first part of the year. Um, so again, like I said, I always promise to be more consistent. The holidays was a really bad time, obviously. And then being sick delayed the return of it. But if you're still with me here, I am so glad to have you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for reminding me, hey girl, time to get back to it. Um, I think probably in the next month in February, um, I'm going to start adding some TikTok um, interactions and perhaps we will start doing um, Instagram lives. I'm not entirely sure, or maybe YouTube you guys reach out to me and let me know what you think would be better because I'm kind of new about that part of it. But I would love to be able to do something where we can interact together and we are just going to do crime and cocktails. Or maybe once a month, what we will do is 
a cult and we'll do cult and cocktails and we'll find some medium that works for everybody and we can get together and enjoy it. So I'd love to hear from you and see what your ideas are about that. Um, as usual, you can catch me on Twitter or on Instagram. On Twitter, it's MurderVPod, at MurderVEEPod. On Instagram, it is the same, at MurderVPod. I look forward to hearing from you. As always, tweet me, send me messages on Instagram. Let me know what you think of the show. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please feel free to go to the show or any of the shows. Like, like the show, rate it, subscribe. Uh, let me know how you feel it. If you love it, give me five stars. Leave me a review. I would love that if you would, please. Um, if you don't want to leave me a review, that's okay too. If you'd like to leave me a bad review, I hate to hear that, but I'd love to hear your constructive critiques about why you don't like the show or think I deserve less than five stars. So I am here. I am at your whim. So I appreciate, again, all the support. May it be good or bad. Let me know how you feel about the show. And that, you guys, is the story of the Order of the Solar Temple. I'll be back next week with you. We are going to discuss a very interesting case of fraud that also includes a few murders. Um, the story of a fake Rockefeller um, that I found to be particularly interesting. So I'll see you back here next week for that story. And again, this is Murder V Wrote, and I am your host, V. Later, guys.